Where do we start, Dakota? Oh, man, I, uh, you know, I thought I was inundated with emails and texts and stuff before I sent out that email uh, to our list about the, the topic for tonight's webinar. And, uh, and boy, was I wrong. <laughs> because right afterwards, I, I know, probably got 20 emails from folks uh, either telling me new conspiracy theories that I'd never heard of before, or uh, uh, I was actually surprised. There was quite a few people that um, were disappointed that I I had sunk so low to the point of even mentioning conspiracy theories uh, at all. And so, uh, and there was other people that that were really grateful that we were that you and I were going to discuss this topic. So, uh, I think we're gonna start from there. Are there people in the webinar too? There's a couple of people in the webinar, yeah. How did they get in? <laughs> I thought... they, probably, they probably got in through your email. Oh, no, I, I didn't have an email link. I guess not. All right. Well, hi, Lad and Aaron. <clears throat> we were trying to simplify things by uh, keeping everybody on YouTube, but you guys snuck through, so good. <laughs> um, anyways, I, I thought I would, uh, I would start off tonight with a quote from uh, a fellow by the name of F. Scott Fitzgerald. Uh, he said that the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. So I want you to remember that quote uh, as we go through you know, some of the, the stuff we're gonna talk about tonight uh, leading up to the Q&A session before we start uh, answering guys' questions. Because if, uh, if anything that Rob and I say makes you really upset, uh, what does that say about your intelligence? <laughs> that being said, uh, I do wanna make some uh, you know, caveat statements to this is when, uh, when Rob and I use the word conspiracy theory, um, actually this insight today, I was talking with somebody else, um, I, I actually think we should refer to them as hypotheses. You know, it's like, let's, let's use the scientific method uh, with this stuff and they're, they're a theory. No need to throw the word conspiracy in there because now it's used as an, as an epithet to slander people because there have been and still are, you know, very valid conspiracies in the world. It's, it's a, a conspiracy is just one or two, two or more people gathering together to do something illegal. That's all a conspiracy is. So <clears throat> I think there's a lot of baggage around that term. Um, so if, if we use the word today, we're, we're, not, um, we're not using it to slander or make fun of or belittle anybody's um, uh, you know, beliefs or ideas about certain things in the world. And uh, we're actually gonna be using some examples of various theories or hypotheses that that uh, about you know COVID-19 as a thought experiment uh, to actually finish off the this train of thought to, to see how we actually don't even need to go into the realm of conspiracy theories or hypotheses um, and there's actually another approach um, and this is just something that Rob and I have have talked at great length about um, because we get exposed to a lot of, of different theories. People send us emails, hey, have you guys heard about this? Have you watched this video? Um, you know, all these different things. And, and uh, also what, 
I don't know, I'll, I'll speak for myself, but I, I really do appreciate when people send me those videos. I, I don't actually watch all of them, um, but I, I, um, like I said, this is not at all to, to make fun of anybody um, and, uh, and some of the things that are going around out there, because as you'll see, there's a, there's a different tack that we could take. So is there anything you wanted to say before we jump into that, Rob? Yeah, just that, that as we go through this, um, I, I just to give kind of people an overview of the arc that we're going to be covering, um, the goal is to get out of this on, on, on a positive note on the other side. And um, I think the for me, the root cause of, um, oh, there's so much to unpack. Um, the root cause of all of this uh, fundamentally is fear. Um, and, and so much of what you and I have talked about over the years is, is how um, fear can be a very paralyzing force if you're not uh, conscientious of it. And, um, and so one of the best ways that you can overcome fear is by, by naming it and, and looking at it and, and, and unpacking a little bit. Um, and so the, the goal here is to end on a positive note this evening. And I think that's, that's really important. Um, I too have been getting a lot of uh, emails, but I think that over the years I've, um, well, I mean, tonight, tonight's just going to be an example of, of how I've approached all of the conspiracy theories that I'm uh, subject to or privy to uh, in the courses that I teach. Um, and so we're, we're going to kind of continue on with that um, that idea, but we're going to unpack a few ideas as we go along. So let's get into it. Okay. So the uh, the first thing I wanted to mention was I'm going to share my screen here. Uh, I wanted to share a little icon uh, called the cognitive bias codex. And um, folks can, you can search this stuff online and uh, check it out. Rob, is that coming through okay with the yeah. description? Yep, no, it's great. So <clears throat> um, this, this is was, a little- This was built based on Daniel Kahneman's work. Um, um, he was, um, was yeah. it, he's an economist. Um, what is it called? Uh, behavioral economist. Yeah. And so this, this infographic shows, I think it's almost 150 different cognitive biases um, or basically blinders, the things that, that um, you know, assumptions that people have that are essentially incorrect, um, but you can't see that they're incorrect. Much the same as, a, you know, we use the word paradigms. These are essentially all the different paradigms that have been identified uh, by different folks um, that uh, that represent blind spots in in human thinking, and so before we get into the the conspiracies and things like that, what I uh, what I wanted to start off with is just um, the uh, the simple observation that um, our perceptions, like the way we see reality, are literally shaped through our existing assumptions, through our existing paradigms, through these cognitive biases. And you know, there's a lot of research that's been done on, um, I mean, just take for example, if, if, you're, if you're married or if you have kids, um, 
they can be talking to you and you can literally tune them out. Uh, and you're like, what, what did you say? Because you, you can actually just filter out information. Um, and that's essentially what these, um, these cognitive biases are for is, is they help us filter out unnecessary information because the brain is one of the most energy intensive organs in our body. I think it uses like 25% of our uh, metabolic energy. And, uh, and without uh, these evolutionary um, hardwirings th that we refer to as cognitive biases, your head would literally explode from all the information. So th these are not necessarily bad things, but when we're not aware of them and we uh, make the, we don't have, you know, humility, um, it's easy to, you know, what's the saying is if, if you make assumptions, it makes an asset of you and me. Uh, so uh, keeping this in <laughs> mind, <laughs> uh, is, there, is there anything else you wanted to add about the, this cognitive bias stuff, Rob, before we get into some examples of this? No, it's, it's super profound. And, and uh, since reading, I haven't read Daniel Kahneman's book, but um, a lot of the other work that I've read references his work all the time. And uh, these cognitive biases are really important. Um, and I, I think that, um, you know, going back into my university uh, degree, um, if I could do it all over again, or for anybody that's going to be starting university in the coming years, um, understanding this, understanding um, simple uh, probability um, is really, really important because you can't become a critical thinker if you're not aware of your blind spots. Um, and so these are just the known biases. And by no means you're going to read this and memorize them all. There's a few of them that, uh, that I keep top of my mind all the time. And we can talk about those later in the show if people are interested in talking about biases. Um, but ultimately, I think that not every person is subject to every single uh, bias um, in the same way. Uh, it, I think it has a lot to do with how we're raised um, and the community that we hang out with. And, and so um, it's good to unpack a few of these and kind of understand where you potentially have those, uh, those blind spots or those pitfalls within the way that you perceive the world. Totally. So the, uh, what we've already talked about how, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of theories out there and as opposed to calling them conspiracy theories, uh, Rob and I prefer to just think of them as, as hypotheses because then you can use the scientific method to validate whether or not they're true or not. And which brings us to an interesting point about science. Um, and uh, Rob and I had this conversation today, which is th there's, there's a difference between science and scientism. And I think one of the most dangerous conspiracy theories out there is this idea of, of scientism and, and how it's actually broken off from, from scientific and the scientific method. And because of the cognitive biases and things like that, um, and just you know, dogma in general, we, um, we may have created one of the most dangerous religions ever known to man. <laughs> uh, and so, the the difference between the science and scientism rob and i discussed today was uh um science is the process of you come up with a hypothesis this is this is what i think is happening in reality and then you you try to prove it wrong that's essentially what science is you 
you make an assumption and then you try to break it. Scientism on the other hand is you make an assumption and then you try to prove you're right. And so this is how, you know, Monsanto and big pharma and industrial agriculture can use science and the scientific method or saturated fats are bad. You know, the China study, all these different things. Uh, if you're trying to prove yourself right because of the, the cognitive biases that we all have, we will find the things that we're looking for. Um, and so it's actually much better to take the, the traditional scientific method approach, which is, um, uh, there's a fellow by the name of uh, Nassim Taleb, he calls it via negativa. Uh, or the, uh, there's an, another philosophical approach, which is, um, it's called uh, ap apophatic, which means to, to discover truth through negation. <clears throat> uh, Rob, do you have anything you want to add to that? Yeah, and I would just say it's not the traditional method. It's like that is the scientific method. Um, and I think that with the advent of the internet, there's so much information out there that um, a person will typically get scared. Um, and then they will try to, they'll, they'll come up with a, um, a belief about what is right and what's wrong or why something is happening. What, and it can be anything at all. Um, <laughs> we're going to get into some of these tonight, I think. But, uh, and then you go out and you seek information to support your, your bias or your belief. And it's crazy. The phone calls that I've received in the last uh, couple of weeks, um, we start with what we know. So coronavirus is happening. Um, there's all these events that are occurring. And then um, we've got all of these um, other things that we find on the internet to support our own theory, as opposed to um, the other way around, which is like, okay, you've got a theory, go out and try and disprove it now, um, which would be the scientific method. And so you end up creating this positive feedback loop, not positive as in it's a good feedback loop it means it's just that we continue to support these ideas by uh, throwing away information that is contrary to our belief um, and uh, adding information that supports our belief and so we end up in this echo chamber um, and it's if you've ever this is something that we talk a lot about in our permaculture design course. Um, permaculture itself is fundamentally based upon solutions. Uh, the problem is the solution. It's one of uh, Mollison's most famous saying, sayings. Um, and so if you want to find a solution in the problem, um, the, the problem with that approach or the, the bias or the blinder or the... Um, mental block that we all are subject to is that when we get scared about something, it shuts down the sinking portion of our brain. So there's this thin layer on the front called the prefrontal cortex. And, uh, and you know this, I'm mostly saying this to folks out in the YouTube sphere. And so when you start to engage in fear-based conversations and you're supporting your beliefs around fear by going out and seeking information, then you shut off the thinking portion of your brain and you end up existing back here in, in um, the croc brain, the kind of more primitive uh, portion of the brain, which is really responsible for fight or flight. And you literally can't get out of that. It's really hard to get out of that feedback loop. Um, and so it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And the conspiracy just grows and, and all of these, <laughs> your hypothesis is no longer a hypothesis. It's a, it's a dogma. 
And we just go and support those beliefs in whichever way you can. And again, coming back to what Dakota said, our intent here is not to make fun of people that are creating these stories up in their head. And, and maybe they're not even creating them. They might be right. Who knows? Um, there's no way to know. In fact, that's the whole kind of point of this evening is that um, um, there's just no way. Like, if, uh, if there is this global elite, let's just say, that has control over the world, um, I, and, and they were as smart as, as we say they are, there's probably a really good chance that we have no clue what it is that they're actually doing um, because they're so intelligent. So um, trying to figure out what they're actually doing is kind of counter, a little bit counterproductive. So let's get into the next uh, piece there. For sure. So <clears throat> the um, just an example of, uh, of, you know, science versus scientism and, and um, one of the, how, how we, if, if we, if we don't acknowledge that we have assumptions that we're bringing to the table, um, there's, um, I, I never went to, I never went to university. I, I went to trade school after high school. That was it. Um, and so I, I, I can't speak to this because I don't, I, I've, um, I haven't actually, you know, gone to university, but a lot of people that uh, I know that have, uh, have mentioned that one of the things that's taught in like scientific theory classes is this idea of the objective observer in science, which is the belief that a scientist can somehow magically remove all of his cognitive biases and just objectively view reality. Um, and uh, in, in a pure state. Um, and this is one of the assumptions that, that science is based on, which I think is why it leads to much of the, um, the uh, why it's easy to, to, to go from science to scientism. And so one of the, one of the examples of this is, um, and again, I, I'm not saying these, this, this is a, um, uh, one of these are right or they're wrong. Again, we'll get to the how Rob and I actually uh, make sense of all these conspiracies. How do you how do you actually act in a world where there's so much information coming at you? But uh, to give you an idea of the um, just how the current kind of mainstream theory about the you know the coronavirus and, and all viruses uh, might be uh, misplaced is. There is, um, there's different medical doctors. One of them is, is uh, uh, Dr. Thomas Cowan. He works a lot with uh, Sally Fallon and the Weston A. Price Foundation. And uh, I was watching an interview with him recently where he was talking about one of the new theories about viruses is that uh, uh, viruses actually originate inside the, the body of bodies of mammals, the cells of mammals, much the same way that that when a cell in a in an, in a mammal or a, an organism is is unhealthy, it can turn cancerous, and then it you know mutates inside the 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 body and continues to grow. Uh, so one of the theories about viruses is that they are essentially another form of cancer, basically. And the uh, when an organism is sick, it creates these the cells produce these viruses, and they are able to somehow leave the body, and they go in and can infect other organisms. Uh, and again, I'm not saying that theory is correct, but if we look back at history about all the things, um, like 
the problem with a paradigm and the problem with a cognitive bias is that you don't know you have one until you have it, until you've, until you've seen it. And so, um, you know, doctors used to tell pregnant mothers it was okay to smoke and drink. Uh, there, there used to be a scientific belief in the, uh, in just 30, 40 years ago that it, it was a good idea to sterilize our stomachs um, to stop the bad bugs from getting in. Um, like these were at one point, um, you know, steadfast beliefs in science. And, and I'm not saying that, um, uh, that, that science is, is wrong, but when we hold on too tightly to these, to a specific ideology and we, we fail to ask the question, what if we're wrong or use the true scientific method, which is, okay, here's my hypothesis. Now I'm going to try to break it. I'm not going to try to prove it. I'm going to try to find the, the exception that makes the rule, uh, or at least do both. Um, you can lead to, to completely different uh, outcomes. And so one of the things that concerns me a lot about the, the narrative around the, this particular virus and the idea of germ theory in general is, um, is the dialogue of, of war or um, uh, th this idea that it's, it's like the humans against the world, you know, Trump and a lot of other leaders around the world are referring to this as a as a as a as a war that we're against that we're in right now against these viruses, and um, and so when we when we see ourselves as you know separate or above uh, the natural world, it only makes sense to try to to fight it and and control it and destroy it. Versus, what if these viruses are actually messengers? Uh, in the same way that you know mycelium connects, you know plants underground. What if these viruses and bacteria and things like that are ways for organisms to communicate with each other? Um, there's a lot of really good information about how have letting your child have a fever for certain illnesses is actually really good. Letting them go above you know a certain temperature can actually knock out uh, other diseases that are more dangerous. Um, things like this. So it's it's not all cut and dried and um, the, uh, again, coming back to that quote, the, the, uh, the sign of a first rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. Um, when, when we get into a, kind of a crisis mode like this, and I see a lot of this happening, you know, with, with people I know and particularly on social media where you've got that, uh, distance and a lack of, of feedback or accountability is, People are saying really nasty, awful things to each other and actually calling for censorship uh, of certain ideas, uh, which is very dangerous because then you can't, you're not allowing yourself to, to be proven wrong. It's this, and that's, that's the extreme end of, of scientism is like, we know this for sure. That is the most dangerous statement anyone's ever spoken. We know this for sure. And, and therefore we're gonna act accordingly. And, and you know, just look back at, at history about all the theories that have been disproven. Uh, a couple more examples. Um, we don't actually know how uh, planes are able to fly. This is something that Rob, maybe you can go into a bit more detail. You were telling me about it the other day. You sent me an article, um, like the leading kind of aerodynamics uh, engineer in the world was talking about how Bernoulli's principle solves some of the problems of, of aviation, but it doesn't account for everything. 
Um, we don't understand how gravity works. And again, this is not to say that we, we shouldn't continue with science and continue to investigate things, but uh, the world is complex. There are co constantly, um, even if we were right now, it might change later. So the, one of the ideas behind permaculture is, is how, do you, how do you act in a world that is incredibly complex, random, emergent, and ever-changing? You know, the, the, who is the Greek philosopher um, Heraclitus? He said the, the only change, or, so the only constant in the universe is change. Uh, and so um, the, with, with that in mind, uh, you know, I'd like to go forward, unless Rob, you have anything else to add there, uh, into, some, into some actual examples of some of these conspiracy theories and, and how we can actually go to a higher level and uh, ignore most of them, or if not all. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I could tie a little bit more into some of the science stuff there, um, but um, I, I think we should we should get into the razor. I think that's the next thing we can we can come back and, and folks, if you're if you're listening right now and you have any comments or questions, please put them up in the comment section. Um, if you want to discuss any specific conspiracy theories, this is the time and the place to to get them out in the in the open. Um, the I think that there's a couple of things um, just to tie back into what you said, and then let's get, let's open up the razor a little bit. Um, and I'll talk about what I mean by the razor here in a second or to quote a will. But um, first of all, like when, when we go to war with nature, which is essentially what we're proposing right now, I think it's really important to remember that we're 99.3% non-human. Uh, if you look at us on a, a genetic level, most of uh, what it means to be human is to be in cooperation with a whole bunch of organisms on our body. Uh, trying to fight or beat this virus is insane. And, and so, and, and I mean that like in the true sense of the word insane, because I think it was uh, Dr. Zach Bush that said there's more viruses on planet Earth than there are known stars in the universe. Um, so we're not going to, um, we're not ever going to beat viruses. Um, we've seen now that there's a, they're attempting to, to, to build a, um, um, what the heck, an inoculum, uh, not an inoculum, what is it? a vaccine for this. And we've seen that it takes a year to a year and a half. Um, I don't think that process is going to, it might speed up a little bit. Um, and we're not going to get into the whole vaccine series, Matt, I hope. But, um, um, but uh, the reality is, is that um, our bodies are designed to fight viruses. And maybe this is a novel virus, maybe this is a new virus, and, and, and you know, we're not equipped, or 1% of us are not equipped to deal with it. But um, if you look at the stats, um, you know, the people that are perishing right now already had compromised immune systems. And so I think um, as opposed to trying to fight it, as opposed to, and, 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 the, and the words that we use are really important um, because it really sets the tone of, of how we act as a species. It comes back down to that prefrontal cortex or croc brain. Um, there was two things that came across my desk uh, about a week, two weeks ago, which was talking about the Spanish flu and was talking about um, the bubonic plague. And these are these are perfect examples of anecdotal evidence. These were not studied, um, and there's no way to prove it. And in fact, 
science can't prove anything. That's the other thing that you hear all the time with regards to the scientism thing is that, well, we know this to be true. We've proved it with science. Like, well, no, no, science can't prove anything. All we do is we create a hypothesis and we try to strip away things on the outside. But, um, but anyway, I think that these two, there's, there's actually three pieces of data that came across my, um, uh, my desk that I think are worth noting. And then we'll get into this razor and we'll talk a little bit more about uh, conspiracy theories and then what you can actually do about it and, and how this turns into something productive at the end. I know some of you are wanting us to get to the meat of this. And we've been building up context up to this point. I think if we just dug right into the meat, it wouldn't make any sense. Um, so number one, um, if you if you do some research on vitamin D, um, vitamin D is turning out to be one of the most important hormones in our body, and it's something that our bodies naturally produce. Um, and and the, you can go really far down the rabbit hole on vitamin D. One of the most interesting ones for me is um, this idea that uh, we all know that our skin produces it when it hits sunlight. Um, and we also know that uh, vitamin D, the precursor to vitamin D is cholesterol, um, which is really interesting. So you have to have cholesterol on your skin so that when UV light hits it, it will turn into vitamin D and gets absorbed into our body. Uh, but the thing is, is that when we're washing three times a day, which, which is kind of interesting because germ theory would have you believe that we have to get microbes off of our skin in order to protect ourselves. When you're washing yourself once or three times a day, whatever you know, regime that you use, probably people on this call are not washing themselves three times a day, but uh, you end up washing the cholesterol off. And so because your body wants vitamin D, uh, it ends up producing more cholesterol. So there's a theory out there that um, more washing increases bad cholesterol or cholesterol in general in your body, which then we end up scientists or doctors end up putting us on anti-cholesterol drugs, which then forces our body to try and produce more cholesterol. It's kind of an interesting positive feedback loop. Vitamin D is every cell in our body has vitamin D receptors. And one of the first things that a virus will do is it will uh, block those vitamin D receptors in our body. Um, so there's an interaction there that's going on. And there's quite a few doctors that have studied this interaction. So some doctors say if you start feeling sick, if you take 25 or 50,000 units of vitamin D, the minute you feel that thing in the back of your throat, you can actually avoid getting sick. Um, the bubonic plague and the Spanish flu both happened in the middle of the winter. So one happened after World War One. That's the Spanish flu. So everybody was nutrient deficient. And they were also vitamin D deficient because they had been in cloudy Europe um, without any vitamin D. The bubonic plague happened right after a major volcanic eruption. And so global sunlight levels went down for, I think, two years. Um, which then also uh, reduced people's immunity um, because vitamin D has such a strong role in immunity. And so um, I guess what I'm, where I'm going with all of this is when we use words like war, uh, we end up taking warlike measures to, to, to deal with these things. We end up taking warlike measures and then it creates a whole bunch of fear because our government starts getting involved in our life. And as soon as we see this kind of use of power and, and this fear and requiring or eliminating our freedoms, um, so to speak, um, this fear then leads to this idea of uh, conspiracies or we're calling them hypotheses. And you end up uh, on the internet where there's so much bad information like, um, Anybody can produce CNN level quality uh, television these days on YouTube. And, um, and so everything all of a sudden has the same kind of level of credibility that we all grew up with looking at the television and reading newspapers because it's so easy to replicate this kind of quality of content, so to speak. Um, and so 
ultimately the solution, because this won't be the last virus, this won't be the last microbe that we have to deal with. Um, we have got to raise our level of understanding with regards to how our own biological system functions. Um, and then we can start to take action on all of that. So um, I think that that's enough on, on science. Let's get into this razor thing. And we can talk about some of these uh, conspiracy theories that you've been emailed on. And I might bring up a couple as well. Um, and then we'll get into something productive on the end. And we've got lots of um, other great stuff to talk at, about at the end of this, uh, this call as well. So just stay tuned. So essentially, all of the hypotheses about this virus and, and you know, every other event in history, where we talk about you know 9/11, the World Wars, the you know the Great Depression, there's the you know any any political figure that's ever been assassinated, assassinated there's always going to be different theories about who did it, you know who was behind it, different things like that, um, and so the there's two kind of there's two things to to think about with with uh, with these theories is is um, uh, in terms of the themes that they all have. One of the themes is that all these hypotheses have is that they were somehow designed, like that there was there was premeditated intent behind some of these things, um, and and then the other argument is uh, uh, is it was just all by default. It was all just randomness. And, and it just coincidence, it just happened. So um, the, that's really what a lot, of, a lot of the kind of skeptics and the so-called conspiracy theories theorists are arguing about is, is are these events by design or by default? And <clears throat> the, the good thing is that uh, it doesn't matter <laughs> uh, for, uh, and actually uh, the razor, um, which coming back a bit, uh, there are in uh, in philosophy there are uh, something called a something, something called a razor, which is uh, like a, a thought tool that helps you to cut through information bullshit basically. Uh, so Occam's razor is probably the most uh, common, which is you know the the explanation that is the simplest is is usually the one that's correct is essentially what Occam's razor is. There's another one, I can't remember what his name is. It was either Hume or something else. This is one of my favorites, which is uh, never attribute to malice that which can adequately be explained by stupidity. <laughs> uh, so those are, those are philosophical razors that you can kind of apply to information to, to see, you know, help you make an actionable decision, how to, how to live your life. Uh, so, one of the, the razors that, that Rob and I use when it comes to these conspiracy theories, or, or hypotheses, whatever, <laughs> whatever, I know it's, 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 uh, it's hard to, to get away from. And again, um, like full disclosure, I spent probably five years of my life down every conceivable rabbit hole you can imagine. And I, I don't know, I, Rob, I don't know if you spent that much time, but I know you've gone down your share rabbit holes too. It's, it's hard not to. There's, they're entertaining, if nothing else. Uh, so I've I've done a lot of uh, uh, research, and I spent a lot of time, you know, afraid and angry and um, you know resentful at uh, all the 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 injustices and suffering that's happening in the world, um, because it's whether whether it is by design or by default, there's 
there's definitely some coincidences there that are, are hard to look away from. But eventually I got to the point and um, this is kind of Rob's, uh, uh, I can't remember when it happened, but it was probably several times where I would, I would bring uh, a new hypothesis up to Rob and, and he would get overwhelmed and, and uh, uh, kind of upset that I brought it up. And eventually we had this discussion, which was, you know, is this even worth our time talking about? And uh, what we came to is at the end of the day, the razor that you can use with all these conspiracy theories or hypotheses is uh, to ask yourself one simple question, which is, are there actions that you can take that will help you to live uh, you know, a good life if one, none, or all of these hypotheses are correct. Essentially, it's, it's um, you assume they're all right, you assume they're all wrong, and you assume whichever one specific one that you really think is right. And then you ask yourself, okay, if I were to live, if I were to believe that, that, they were, that one, none, or all of these were, were correct, how would I live my life? How would, I, how would I react to that? What would I do about it? And the interesting thing is I've, I've done this with every single conspiracy you can imagine. And like, you know, the, I'm going to go through some of the ones that I'm aware of. Uh, and none of these are, I'm not saying I, I believe or don't believe them. I'm just saying these are, these are well-known kind of mainstream <laughs> hypotheses. Uh, you know, things like the, you know, the, the Nazis didn't lose World War II. They actually won it. And there's a breakaway civilization that lives in the dark side of the moon. You know, there's theories about how the, you know, the, there's this royal bloodline that uh, controls the whole, you know, world and, uh, um, you know, manipulates everything from, you know, four or five different family bloodlines. Like, you just go on and on and on with, with all of these different theories. But at the end of the day, I would spend literally hundreds of hours of my life researching these, these theories. And... Um, and you get to the end of it, and if it didn't fork off and go down an even deeper rabbit hole, which is typically what happens, is, is these, these theories tend to breed and um, just get more complex the more you look into them. Uh, at the end of the day, when I ask myself, okay, if this was true, how would I live my life? And it's like, well, I would practice permaculture. Okay, if, if this was true, like how would I live my life? What's, what's something I could do to make a meaningful change? I'd practice permaculture. And... Um, and so this is the, um, this is what basically what, what we've come to is that the, we don't actually even need to have these discussions. It's not to say that you can't continue to do research about on these things, but if you, if you're going to do research, at least acknowledge that you have cognitive biases for both the, the skeptics and the, the theorists out there, assume that you might both be wrong and that you might both be right. And, and then ask yourself, what's what's the are there any actions that you can take that will, will work? And I actually want to um, there's a there's a little cartoon I want to show that uh, captures this really well. Um, I saw this years ago, and so I just brought it up uh, for folks who um, if you can't see it, it's basically there's a there's a uh, I'm assuming a scientist who's giving a presentation at a climate summit about how uh, you know, we can have energy independence, we can preserve our rainforest, we can have sustainability, green jobs, livable cities, renewables, clean water, air, healthy children, et cetera, et cetera. And then someone in the audience stands up 
yeah, but what if it's all a big host and we create a better, what if it's all a big hoax and we create a better world for nothing? And so um, this is where, uh, I, and again, to be clear, I'm not saying climate change is or isn't a hoax. Uh, what I'm saying is there are things that we can do that will benefit us whether or not it's a hoax or not. And, and that's the, the, the core piece of, of all these conspiracy theories. And, and that's where permaculture comes in. Um, Trying to get rid of my share here. Uh, Rob, is there any, anything you wanted to add to that? There's, there's a couple of other points I wanna make before we get into the Q and A, but that was kind of one topic there, so. Uh, I think um, I, I think we can kind of jump into the spheres now and then get into, you know, people can bring bring questions if you're all right with that. Uh, yeah, I, I think so. So, yeah. yeah. So, oh, do you want me to, you want me to take that? Uh, I'll, I'll share my screen and then you can talk about it if you want. Yeah, okay, great. Okay. So, um, a lot of you are asking, uh, uh, let me just go back into the comments here. Uh, Rochelle Varga, can someone please explain how COVID-19 conspiracy theories are relevant to permaculture? I seem to be confused as to how this is related to action we can take. Awesome question or comment. There's a lot of people that are kind of confused about why we're talking about conspiracy theories. And um, honestly, I've spent the last 10 years of my life teaching permaculture design courses. And I've now come to call them the six or nine or 12 steps of, 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 of eco mourning, essentially, that people go through when they take one of these programs. And everybody comes with a different story about why they're there and what they're worried about. And usually they tie back into these hypotheses that they've got about, about how they view the world. <clears throat> and um, at the end of the day, as humans and, and as people that are susceptible in the same way that we have to keep our room tidy, we have to keep our thoughts tidy as well. And these conspiracy theories can, can, can be really real. I've been pulled into them. Dakota's being pulled into them. I even, I'd be lying to you right now if I didn't have some beliefs about what's going on, uh, you know, in the world right now, because it's almost impossible not to wonder. Like there's just, like I was working at a desk uh, two weeks ago with, with no you know, thought of, of, of being confined to a house for four months, which is what they're talking about, um, to being confined in a house and, and actually making a, a split second decision to move my entire life from where I'm currently living to a farm. Of course, I'm going to go down that road and start thinking, well, what the heck is going on? Like, why is this happening? And so we all end up in these little mental traps that we have to uh, deal with. And um, in, in our PDCs, we talk about chemtrails and we talk about, um, you know, all these different things and, and people bring them up in class and we have these discussions about it. And what it always comes back down to me, uh, back down um, or back, uh, what it always comes to for me is, is this concept of a sphere of influence and sphere of concern. So let's just frame this COVID thing a little bit and then I'll explain what I mean by sphere of influence and sphere of concern. Um, if you're spending hours and hours of time on the internet trying to confirm your theory about what COVID is and who brought it on and what it means, um, then you're actually just being distracted by the noise. What I see right now happening in the world, um, regardless of what the cause is, I, I'm looking at the symptoms of what is currently occurring. 
and thinking about what the heck is going to happen in six months from now. Um, How am I going to be a father and a leader in my community um, and deal with what is potentially looming? And so here's what I see. And and, and I'm going to say this again. Predictions are for charlatans. Um, and so, but you still can make statements. You just have to um, state that you're probably wrong. Um, and so I can see that the economy is currently being demolished in front of our eyes right now. Businesses are being shut down. Money flow is stopping. Stock markets are crashing. Um, the last time something like this happened, and it wasn't as a result of uh, you know, a disease, was in the dirty 30s. We are heading towards, um, likely, we are heading towards another Great Depression. Um, the scale of this uh, is, is not really being discussed in the news because it's so big that our politicians don't really know what to do with it. I mean, they don't really have, they've got the ability to print lots of money, um, but there's all sorts of consequences that come in, in, in uh, down the road when you start printing massive amounts of money. And, and we don't, we're not gonna get into economic theory right now. And so for me to be spending hours and hours of time on conspiracy theories means that I'm not spending time on understanding what uh, amount, where I have the ability to influence um, my decisions or my future. Go to, you can either, um, I'm just getting, I was just answering some chats there. Sorry yeah, yeah, no worries. Uh, just make sure that your window is shared just on the PowerPoint there. Um, so, if you're spending time on conspiracy theories, which are almost guaranteed to be wrong, not because there might be components of your theory that is correct, um, then you're not spending time figuring out what you're gonna do in six months from now. And so permaculture is all about action. It's about creating um, lifelines, it's about creating uh, supply chains, um, and these conspiracy, conspiracy theories or hypotheses end up usually being so massive in scale that we have almost no influence over them. We don't have influence over the Bilderbergs. We don't have influence over the Illuminati. We don't have influence over chemtrails. We don't have influence over breakout civilizations on the moon. These are things that I have no ability to influence with my own personal energy. But I do have enormous amounts of influence over how my, my uh, family spends money, where we spend our time. Are we gonna be growing food or are we gonna be you know, reading the internet? Um, are we gonna be building community? Uh, are we going to be creating resilience? And the minute that you have the ability to differentiate between what you have influence over and what you have concern about um, is, the, is the exact moment that you can stop worrying about what happens out here because you have no ability to influence it whatsoever. And in fact, what happens when you start to focus in on the sphere of influence on the inside, um, all of a sudden, you know, like who would have ever thought that some, and I'm not trying to say this to be cocky or, or brag or anything like this, because I, I certainly would never have predicted where I currently am in my life right now. But if you go back 12 years from now, <clears throat> when I was still in the oil and gas industry, nobody knew who I was. Um, I was some introverted engineer doing calculations on how to run natural gas pipelines across the country um, to be where I am right now, where I'm surrounded by incredible people, thousands of incredible people who have touched my life by coming to our programs, um, by focusing on what I had control of at the time, because I was worried about a lot of conspiracy theories at the time and going around the world, learning about permaculture, learning about renewable energy, natural buildings. I ended up um, 
control. That was something I had control over. And as a result of that, started educating and started to surround myself with communities and, 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 uh, and people who are doing incredible things right across this country and other countries. Um, and, and in doing so, by focusing in on what I had control of, my sphere of influence actually started to grow. And, and so I actually started to have more influence over the things that I was concerned about because I had a larger social network around me who were committed or moving towards similar uh, ends. And when you are out here in the sphere of concern, it shuts off your ability to think about the things that you actually have action um, for. And so permaculture was actually the tool that I needed to be able to take control of my life energy and put those limited hours that I have on this earth towards things that were actually going to make meaningful change for me and my family and my community. And so whenever I find myself getting outside of my sphere of influence mentally, I, I catch myself or Dakota catches me or somebody around me catches me and it, it uh, flips a light switch off in my head and I shrink back down into where that sphere of influence actually is. And so the last thing I want to say before I pass it over to Dakota is that the crazy buying that's going on right now uh, of toilet paper and now it's starting like food is starting to, to, to leave shelves. I was in the grocery store the other day and shelves are starting to look pretty bare. Um, our politicians are being told or telling us that this is ridiculous. We shouldn't be acting this way. And to a point, they're actually right, because the system's not designed for people to instantaneously go and start hoarding things. Uh, that's how you get a collapse. But people's actions, um, this hoarding mentality, uh, is actually something that they have within their sphere of uh, influence. And the reaction is a reaction to um, uh, an understanding at a deep level or at least maybe it's even a subliminal level that the system is not designed to be shut down for any period of time. And so the only logical thing to do when you're about to shut an entire economy down is to make sure you have enough supplies to last for uh, four to six months. And so it's actually not an irrational response to go out and hoard. The more rational response than that, uh, that you know, hoarding, is to actually take control of your supply lines uh, and start to systematically uh, self-supply in the areas that uh, we're currently short. And I'm not saying we should start toilet paper factories. There's probably other ways for us to wipe our butts. But, um, but we can start to take control of our food, energy, shelter, and water supplies in very, very cost-effective ways, whether we live in urban or rural environments. And what's really interesting about that is that when you have a year supply of food, when you've got the ability and understanding on how to deal with your own waste, um, to grow your own food, to manage the nutrient cycle in your soils, um, to collect your own energy, um, these are not concepts that you need to be a rocket science to understand. When you have that knowledge, the level of fear starts to calm down. Um, a lot of the fear that I think people feel is because we're so hyper-specialized. We've all been told to rely on our grocery stores, to make to rely on the natural gas pipes coming into our house, the electrical lines coming into our home, um, to the point that we wouldn't know what to do if those things stopped being there. But when you start opening your eyes to this thing and real and expanding your sphere of influence, because as you gain knowledge, your sphere of influence actually increases. Um, the things that we have concern over, 
um, and, and the influence that other people have from the outside coming in actually diminishes because we start having um, sufficiency. And I'm not talking about complete self-sufficiency. I'm talking about interdependence within your community. And this is one of the main reasons that the Permaculture Calgary Community Group was formed, was to start creating those bridges and relationships between people so that we understood what our needs and yields were. And once you have that, then a lot of these problems and fears go away and we can actually be totally fine um, without having to worry about these fragile systems that exist around us. So the reason that I feel that conspiracy theories are a waste of time is not because they're all wrong necessarily, is because you have almost zero ability to influence them. And so you end up just wasting countless hours doing things that are completely unproductive and not fundamentally dealing with your own supply chains. And a lot of the conspiracy theories that exist out there revolve around control, control of us, control of our communities, control of people. Well, people are very difficult to control when all of a sudden most of their supply chains are met within their communities or within their locale. And, and so I think Lawton, Jeff Lawton was, was absolutely brilliant. One of my mentors and instructors, when he said, um, community groups are one of the most important things that anybody can do within their local bioregion. And if you build a community group and you call it after the political riding that it sits in, um, that community and, and you build it around a, a shared set of ethics, care of earth, care of people and future care, that community group becomes a political entity without ever having to say what they don't want. All they have to do is show up and, and talk about what they do want. And eventually your politicians will show up uninvited and recognize that they don't know about, they don't know anything about food forestry or permaculture gardens or composting toilets or gray water. And they'll recognize that there's young, old, young and old people, um, there's dogs and cats, uh, and if there's more, if there's a hundred of those types of people meeting in a room on a monthly basis in a community, not-for-profit community group named after the political writing that it sits in, they'll recognize that they face political death because it's probably closer to uh, five or 6,000 people that they represent within their region. Um, and if they don't learn what self-sufficiency and permaculture means, they face political death. And so it's about taking proactive and positive action towards the world that we want, as opposed to sitting around in fear and doing nothing about it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So just to um, summarize some of the things that, that Rob just said there, uh, there's, there's nothing wrong with being aware of what's in your circle of concern. And so the, my, my approach to uh, hypotheses is um, I learned like the tagline about it. You know, Hitler won World War II. There's a breakaway civilization, dark side of the moon. Okay, that's all I need to know about that conspiracy theory. Um, uh, COVID, the COVID virus is, uh, is a biological weapon that is linked up with 5G technology and blah, 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 blah. Like, okay, that's all I need to know. You don't, so beyond like the tagline talking points about that conspiracy theory, that's all you need to know about it um, in terms of your, your circle of concern. So I'm not saying bury your head in the sand, um, but we're also not saying go and spend 24 hours watching these videos because um, again, at, at the end of the day, the, when you ask yourself, are there any actions that I can take within my circle of influence that would 
help make the world a better place if one, none, or all of these hypotheses were correct, there's very few options available to you. And, and they almost all have to do with, with taking responsibility for your own basic needs. And so what becomes painfully evident is that almost all of these hypotheses are acting, acting as either a coping mechanism, a scapegoat, or uh, a tool to help you procrastinate. So it, 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 it allows you to point the finger at somebody else. They're doing this. It's the Illuminati. It's the government. It's the lizard people. It's the queen. It's, we, can, we can take all the responsibility off of ourselves. We can put it onto somebody else. And then that allows us to procrastinate. Well, I'm just, or, or um, don't worry, President Trump is going to save us. He's going to drain the swamp. He's going to round up all of the evil people that have been causing all these problems. And we just have to sit tight and wait. Or uh, whoever, you know, religious savior you want to talk about, you know, we just need to, to um, engage in whatever form of wish thinking you can imagine and sit back and somebody else will, will solve this problem for us. It's the, it's the savior complex. And then the coping mechanism is, is, well, you know, even though this world sucks right now, um, I've got this hypothesis that when, when I die, I'm going to go somewhere even better. And this world was just a means to an end. And however much I suffered here, it'll make it better off. All of these theories, if you, if you think about um, how they're affecting the things that you can influence in your life, they become, uh, to use one of Rob's words, you become allergic to them uh, to a certain point. And so <clears throat> um, a couple other things before we finish off on this thing is um, one of the, the things that pulled me away from spending thousands of hours researching various uh, hypotheses was, um, uh, this is another kind of razor, which is to, to dampen your interest in, in, uh, in conspiracy theories, simply spend time researching alternative conspiracy theories. And now is, there's, there's never been a better time to look at a single event that's, that is being talked at from all sides. I mean, I've, heard, I've literally heard people say this coronavirus thing is a sign of you know, the beneficial or negative extraterrestrials. It's, 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 uh, they're locking everybody in their homes so that Trump and the Patriots can round up all the bad people and send them to Guantanamo Bay. Uh, it's, it's 5G. Like there's, there's literally an infinite number of theories about what is happening right now um, and the, and again, one of them could be right, all of them could be right, or none of them could be right. What are we going to do about it? Um, and the that's what permaculture is all about, which you know we've just nicely rounded up the hour here. Um, but to, to finish off one one other point, uh, which is <clears throat> one of the the principles that that Rob and I use in our you know, decision making, and and um, is that. This comes back to the you know the scientism versus science and coming up with the hypothesis and then trying to prove yourself wrong. The interesting thing about taking that approach is that if you always assume you're wrong, you never will be. Again, it's a, it's a paradox. If, if you if you have a theory and you say, you know what, this is what I believe, but these are the things that that uh, would prove me wrong, um, then. Um, whether your theory turns out to be, if, if your theory turns out to be right, great, you've, you're right. If your theory turns out to be wrong, that's also great because you were assuming that you were wrong anyways and you were monitoring for that. And so it allows us to be a lot more adaptive and change, which is the only, and again, one of the only other things we can influence 
in a random, complex, ever-changing world is, is to be as adaptable as possible. So, you know, hold on loosely to these, these hypotheses, uh, whether you think they're mainstream theories or they're, you know, far out there on the, the fringe. Um, just assume that, that they're all wrong uh, or that they could all be right and ask yourself, what are the actions I could take that would help you if one, none, or all of these are correct? Uh, any closing thoughts, Rob, before we dive into some Q&A? No, I think that's, that's, that's right. I, well, actually, I do have one more thing to say, and, and that is like, if you fundamentally uh, think about science, we come back to that because, because I, I'm a scientist. Um, I rely heavily on it. I teach courses based, uh, you know, in, in ecology. Um, and, um, and I rely really heavily on the scientific method. And I, I think that it's really important that people do not throw science out. It's actually one of the best tools that we've got. It has definitely got its flaws. But one of the ways that you can manage in the same way that our brains have flaws, we know that we are, uh, we pay more attention to fear than we do to uh, solutions. Once you are aware of how your brain works, you can work around its its uh, weaknesses essentially and so one of the best ways to be a better scientist is to understand where science is weak and so one of the ways one of the places that science is weak is reductionism um, reduction is a very is a very powerful tool but it can also end up um, uh, creating a lot of pitfalls because we can draw the wrong conclusions about uh, observations sometimes when we look at individual parts on their own um, as opposed to whole systems. And so permaculture is definitely, um, what I've found anyways in my own learning, is a scientific approach that uses a combination of reductionism and holism, and then it tries to find the intersection point between those two things. And so um, a true scientist, in my opinion, is humble. Um, it's a, is a curious individual who poses questions and creates hypotheses and then goes to prove them wrong. And what we're saying with this conspiracy theory thing is focus on using your uh, mental energy on making your life um, more resilient and your community's life more resilient. Use a scientific method, understand the concept of holism and how it brings it together. Um, and, and be a critical thinker. Don't get sucked into the uh, current right now because it is so easy uh, to get sucked in, like, I don't participate in Facebook, as an example. Why don't I participate in Facebook? Because I've noticed that the croc brain in my head doesn't let me out. Um, and so I physically, uh, in order to break my, this is just an example of understanding a cognitive bias, in order to get out of the Facebook ecosystem, um, I actually had to ask my wife to sign in with my password and change my password to something that I didn't know so that I, I now have to ask Michelle to sign me into Facebook when I want to do something. Um, and so there's friction there that uh, I have to overcome in order to get into Facebook because there's, and there's so much misinformation on there. There's so much garbage on there. There's so much hate. Um, it just was not a positive place for me to be. Uh, so you have to figure out where your own biases are and use the tools you've got, but recognize where their weaknesses are. Don't just throw them away. Um, come at them with a more holistic approach and, uh, and, and recognize where those, those holes in the, in the tools are. 
So um, Dakota and I want, you know, open this up for, for Q&A. And so you guys, um, by all means, can um, post any questions you've got, but anything we talked about this evening. Um, but you can also uh, come forward with any questions that you've got uh, about what you're currently working on. These Q&A sessions that we've set up uh, are kind of multifold. So we want to basically participate in the, the conversation that's going on globally right now. Um, but we recognize, as I said earlier, that we are facing a massive, massive, massive shift over the next six months. And it might last many years. Um, if you go back into the history books, the Great Depression lasted, um, I don't know, what was it, to go to five years or something like that. Um, and so the supply chains, the just-on-time supply chains that we've all become accustomed to with the Internet uh, may not exist in the form that we've currently come to expect them in. And so... Uh, we're really lucky to be in March right now um, and heading into a growing season. And so there's an enormous amount of stuff that you can do to prepare yourself um, and get the most out of this growing season. Um, and, and not just for growing gardens, but actually setting up your whole homestead or whether it's urban or rural, again, it doesn't matter, um, so that you are in a better situation than you are right now if you're not in a good situation. Um, going into the next six months, the next two years, whatever it happens to be. So go ahead and ask your questions. Um, the, uh, the, I'm going to make a couple of announcements unless you want to add anything to that, Dakota. Well, the, I just pulled up one of my favorite quotes from Bill Mollison. Uh, and I just want to read this because it, um, it really brings about why Rob and I wanted to start the talk off tonight about this idea of conspiracy theories or hypotheses and how that translates into, you know, tangible action in the real world. Um, so this is a quote from Bell is, is the, the greatest change we need to make is from consumption to production, even if on a small scale in our own gardens, if only 10% of us do this, there's enough for everyone. Hence the futility of revolutionaries who have no gardens and who depend on the very system they attack and who produce words and bullets, not food and shelter. Um, this is why uh, focusing too much, and I, and I stress that focusing too much on on hypotheses about about why this is happening or what is happening, and forgetting about how we're going to get out of this, we've 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 already lost the race. So um, don't bite the hand that feeds you. You know, if, if you don't like five G and um, uh, and all the other crap that's going on in the world in industrial agriculture, do something about it. Get rid of your phone. Get like you know, try to step away from these systems. Don't be dependent upon them. That's what permaculture is all about, and um, uh, and that's how we're going to have have uh, make meaningful change in this world. And then the old system will just wither and die, and the new one will emerge out of it. And not a a single shot will be uh, fired. Um, and uh, actually, th th there's one other quote I want to read from Bill, which is, um, it, he's talking about permaculture. It's, it's a revolution, but it's a sort of revolution that no one will notice. It might get a little shadier. Buildings might function better. You might have less money to earn because your food is all around you and you don't have any energy costs. Giant amounts of money might be freed up in society so that we can provide for ourselves better. So it's a revolution, but permaculture is anti-political. There's no room for politicians or administrators or priests. And there are no laws either. The only ethics we obey are care of earth, care of people, and the reinvestment to those ends. 
Um, so, I mean, this is, I think, why permaculture is one of the most uh, you know, widely practiced forms of, uh, or growing forms of, of um, designing human habitation in the world right now. There's there's existing organizations on every inhabited continent in the world, I think in every country even. Um, and uh, according to Bill, the, there's more aid work that's accomplished around the world than, you know, the World Health Organization and any of like the top charities combined. And there's no administrators, people just know what they need to do and they go out and do it. So um, that's why we wanted to have this conversation about, um, about hypotheses and and where do we draw the line from the because it's, it's understand it's important to understand how we got here and, and you know why are we here but we can't also for, can't forget about how we're going to get out of here and especially if there's actions we could take that will benefit us no matter what like growing your own food there's there's no downside to that <laughs> there's there's no way you can lose being able to harvest your own rainwater there's not no way you can lose uh, so <clears throat> with that, let's, uh, let's start taking some questions here. And I, I've actually, Robert, I don't know if you have any from your emails, but, um, I was getting a bunch from, uh, uh, from emails that I, I promised I would go through. So yeah, we can start with those. Um, I want to just make one quick, uh, comment here, um, in terms of how we're kind of turning this around on our end here, because the, the problem is always a solution. So, uh, I love, Jeff Lawton's quote, uh, you don't have a slug problem, you have a duct deficiency. And so we've kind of been forced into um, this whole uh, kind of isolation piece. And we've had to cancel all our classes this year. So we are working as quick as we can right now to put an online PDC together. Uh, it'll be launched in a couple of weeks. And you can find all about that on vergepermaculture.ca if you're interested. We've been getting a ton of emails asking us to put together a cold climate northern pdc i've seen a ton of our students that are on this uh chat right now so if you have any questions about what we go through in our permaculture design course you can by all means put it up in the chat and somebody will answer on my, on uh, with regards to uh what's what's included in all of that stuff um the time to start taking control of your supply chains is now and um uh, we want to be part of that journey with you. We've we've been doing this for a long time, and it's one of it's. It, I do it out of passion more than anything else. Um, and so, if you want any information on that, make sure on our newsletter, and we'll be notifying you when that goes live. We're going to make it <laughs> super cheap. Um, the information is going to be the same, but because everybody's struggling right now, we're, we want to create or fill the the void that has been created as a result of us not being able to connect on a regular basis. And so unfortunately it means we have to do it online, but this is going to be um, an incredible experience to go through the growing season and start to design the resilience that we all need to start working towards as a result of this crisis. So um, let's get into some of those questions. I'll, if you're ready to go, Dakota, we can take one of yours first. There's a couple that have just showed up in the, um, in the chat window. How do you want to uh, take this on? Uh, actually, I'm just looking the, uh the i think we've already answered the questions that i got via email so okay. uh if you've got one in in the youtube chat window go ahead by yep. the way folks please please keep your your questions in in all caps just so they're easier for us to find if they get lost and keep your comments um or uh witty banter between yourselves in lowercase <laughs> if you will 
Okay, so uh, the first one is from Al uh, Doust. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing your last name right. It's probably a French pronunciation to that. Doust, maybe. Uh, I'm looking for solutions for wetland property design. I own a 10-acre piece on which we are looking to grow wild rice and cattails for, for calories. What other solutions would you su suggest I look into? And I think, Dakota, you've got some stuff on the top of your head that you can rattle off. For wetland, yeah. So, um, uh, duckweed, lemna minor, is a, uh, a free-floating uh, aquatic plant. You've probably seen it. It just uh, another name for it is like water lentil. Um, is uh, it's a free-floating plant that lives on shallow, warm, high-nutrient-rich water, and uh, it's like forty percent protein. It produces you know, many times over per acre, the amount of, of biomass is like an alfalfa crop. It's highly digestible by all animals, including humans. There's actually a huge movement to start using this uh, lemna minor as an alternative protein, vegetarian protein source for uh, vegetarians, as opposed to using soy because soy is so difficult to digest and energy intensive to produce. So uh, I think Rob, did you just post a video on YouTube about, um, the, my integrated livestock system with the the duckweed harvesting. I think there was just one out there. Um, anyways, tomorrow, tomorrow morning. Oh, tomorrow morning it's coming out. Okay, so uh, this this free floating plant. Um, I, I think I've got some videos on my YouTube channel, um, and Rob's got some other of our farm how we do it. We essentially um, have our livestock corrals drain the, any of the effluent we drain into a small little lagoon, uh, just by by shaping the the land so it drains that way and then we harvest you know water and keep it filled up and this duckweed just blooms like crazy in there and I'm, i harvest you know one to two five gallon buckets a day uh basically during the entire growing season <clears throat> this stuff doubles in size every 24 hours and uh chickens eat it completely they've done research where they've uh fed this stuff to chickens and it can replace uh, I think it's 50% of the ration for chickens with no loss in production or weight gain or, or uh, egg counts or anything like that. Uh, so duckweed's a really big one. And again, all animals can use that. There's also a lot of other organisms that live in it, like water beetles, freshwater shrimp, um, snails, things like that. Um, cattails uh, are another one, or typholotifolia. Um, duck potato is another one. Uh, I think it's... Sagittaria, something or other. But these are all native plants that, that uh, grow incredibly well. Uh, duck potato or uh, excuse me, cattail produces uh, more uh, food value per acre than almost any crop, like any arable crop, uh, in terms of whether it's wheat or corn or or I think potatoes. It doesn't quite beat them. But um, uh, so I I have a flood irrigation system where I plant cattails and I let my pigs go out and I actually harvest them themselves because they dig up the roots and eat them. Um, you can do the same thing with, with duck potato as well. Uh, you can also eat both those crops yourselves if you wanted to. And uh, the other species that I, I've been playing around with a lot is uh, fathead minnows or uh, pipifae pipifalis is the Latin name. They are another incredible uh, native to you know basically every country in the world that uh, thrive in you know low oxygen high nutrient waters uh, a single female lays like 10,000 eggs a year and in 90 days those minnows are two inches long they're delicious for humans to eat chickens pigs will eat them uh, ducks will eat them as well 
Um, those are some examples uh, just from our, our property. I'm not sure where you live. Uh, did he say, Rob? I think Al is from Alberta, uh, I believe. Okay. Uh, an another hack that Rob and I use is um, do some research into your biome. So whether you live in like the Aspen Parkland or the foothills or the boreal biome um, or uh, the, whatever it is, do some research and, and look at, uh, you know, the indigenous endemic species that live both plants and animals in your area and see if you can get clues about what might work there, particularly if there's information about what the indigenous people ate um, in your neck of the woods. You can get some ideas there, but those are four species that would uh, we're using on our farm. I've got videos on YouTube and uh, um, they work really well. Awesome. And I should just say that last year I spent uh, six hours and my bicep got on my right arm, got quite a bit bigger uh, walking around Dakota's farm uh, recording a tour. So we likely won't be having live tours at uh, or Dakota won't be having live tours at his farm this year. And I'm just going to plug his farm or his, his family's farm. They spent 30 years uh, getting to where they are right now. They've rebuilt wetlands. They are doing all of this stuff in spades. It's one of the most progressive farms I've ever seen. Um, and it's all coming at you live on YouTube over the next weeks. Wednesday mornings is usually when they get released. Um, and so they go through all of these systems. And like Dakota said, tomorrow morning, there's going to be uh, a video on uh, Dakota's um, duckweed system and how it feeds its chickens and its pigs. So keep an eye on that. Um, and you can check the previous videos that have come out uh, over the last three weeks. Um, there's lots and lots of great information on there for cold climate permaculture stuff. Um, and if you look at it from a principal's perspective, you're going to get a lot of the ideas around how those systems get set up and some of the, the, um, the thinking that goes into it. So Vaden has a question. Oh, sorry, do you want to say something, Dakota? Just one more resource that I'll throw out there. Uh, if you live in a, um, I mean, this works for everybody, but uh, we have a um, uh, topographical maps or information about the shape of your land, you know, the hills, how flat it is, where your valleys and your ridges are. Uh, that information is incredibly useful for almost every single aspect of your property design from where you build roads, where you build dams, um, you know, how to cross, uh, you know, ravines or things like that. Uh, uh, Rob and I and uh, a fellow, I don't know if Daniel's on the call from um, Uruguay, uh, helped build a, a contramap generator that you can access on contramapgenerator.com. I don't know if you can throw the link up in the chat there, Rob, but yep. you can put yourself or you can, for free, you can pull up a, um, an image of, of a contramap anywhere in the world um, to show the contour lines of your property. And, and that can be really useful when you're trying to, you know, redesign or manage wetlands, particularly because it can show you where to build the dams. Um, I've, the, um, I've literally found, you know, 5 million gallon dams that were right under my nose that I couldn't see because there was some trees or something in the way that because of these contour maps, I was able to, to find a location to build a dam for, you know, a few thousand dollars, uh, which is just an unbelievable, unbelievably cheap. Uh, like that, that amount of water is enough for our farm to, to last like I don't know, 20 years on or something. It's just ridiculous. So um, they can be really useful if um, for all sorts of property design, but particularly for water management. 
Great. So um, I put the link up there if you guys are looking for a contour map. Um, that will also lead you to our open source design tool, which is on our website. We've made our entire design process. Dakota and I have both been working on this for 10 years, uh, five years independently on our own design processes. And then we started working together, um, which just made them go exponentially through the roof. Uh, those are all open source and they run on Google Earth Pro. So um, if you're looking to get gardening, growing food, uh, setting your house up better, all the questions that we ask our clients and we teach to our students are all available in this open source tool. Um, so go get that. If you get the contour map, you'll end up getting led into that whole uh, ecosystem and um, you can start working on designing your property. So Vaden says, considering the present state of family and community, do you think our community groups are prepared for such a challenge? And I'm going to say, Vaden, absolutely. We are ready to go. Um, look at how fast uh, Canada has moved to working at home. What is missing right now, the massive vacuum that exists in our culture and our communities is leadership. And, and you are a leader. I know you. Um, you lead every single day of your life. Um, and uh, people are naturally drawn to the way that you operate. Um, I'm not sure why I'm attracted to the way that you operate, but uh, that's a whole other conversation. Uh, I'm just joking. Um, but uh, we need leaders. We need people to step up and actually start doing stuff. Um, and it's, it's risky. And you risk being called out and people not agreeing with the way that you operate. Um, but if we need to pivot, we will be able to pivot quickly. And, and, and like, while the context was different, uh, I think it was over 50% of the food in the United States was grown in victory gardens um, in a very short period of time. We're in that situation again. We need victory gardens and we need people to step up and show people how to actually grow victory gardens. There's a huge deficiency of skills available out there right now, um, but those skills can be learned quickly when the leaders step up and start showing other people how to do it. Gardening is not rocket science. And if you've got some basic principles behind you, um, then you can do it. Hull Services, which is where you operate, uh, is a beacon of hope for the community that you exist within. Um, and uh, yeah, we just, we just, the people that, if, if you are in a community and you see a, a void that needs to be filled, it probably means you need to fill it. Um, so, and, and there's a lot of those leaders on this call today. I've seen a lot of the names pop up. We can all be leaders um, in our own communities if we choose to be. So I think absolutely the, the answer is yes. The next question, um, how can low-income people build these communities? Um, asked by uh, Jazeera. And I'm going to start. I'm sure you'll have some ideas as well, Dakota. But every single one of us as humans have our own respective needs and yields. And even if you're low-income, you're going to have skills, ideas, and resources, they may not be physical resources necessarily, but um, that I don't necessarily have. And, and so if you start looking at some of the Great Depression videos on YouTube or you read some of the books on it, um, <laughs> the playing field in, in a lot of respects are gonna be uh, a lot more even within our communities than they might've been before. And uh, it's up to those leaders that we were just talking about to be inclusive and recognize that um, we are going to need all hands on deck. Uh, and it, it, like your income level is not really gonna matter when it comes down to 
how we start to rebuild our society or, or make sure that we all get through this. And I know that when, when I'm, as I'm saying those words, I feel I have a little bit of cognitive, cognitive dissonance in my own head. Um, I keep asking myself, am I being too extreme by saying these things? Am I being too extreme by saying um, we're heading into a depression? And, and I, I don't know if we're heading into a depression, but I can tell you that there's a lot of signals that would indicate that, that our financial system is going to look very different in six months from now than it will today. I was talking to one of my bankers today who holds um, uh, our accounts and um, she admitted the same thing that she thinks that we're heading into uh, really difficult economic times. And anybody that doesn't believe that their head is in the sand. So while we can't predict what the outcome is going to be, we can look at the range of options that might um, uh, come out and the probabilities that exist within those range of options and start coming up with strategies that, that will uh, help us to address those issues. So if you go out of your way right now, while you're at home, probably watching Netflix, and I'm not saying anybody here is doing that, but maybe you are, maybe you're, or YouTube videos or whatever it is that you're watching. Um, if you just spend some of that time growing a garden and none of this crisis happens, you just end up improving your health because you've just grown a bunch of nutrient dense food. You've gained some skills. You've probably got some vitamin D on your skin because you're outside in the sun. It's asymmetric, meaning that you can't really lose. Um, if the crisis does end up getting worse financially um, with our, in, in our food systems and our supply chains, um, then that will be a lifeline. And so these are really simple insurance policies that you can action um, and that you can include the people around you because we are going to need human labor um, in order to uh, basically create a North American version of the DASHA. Do you want to add anything to that, Skoda? No, I think that's great. I mean, even, um, I guess the land is certainly not the weak link. I know that was one of your, your questions, follow-up questions below is like, how do you, how do you buy land and materials? Um, I mean, if you live in an apartment building, you can grow food in planters. Um, you, one of my, uh, one of my early teachers, uh, said that, uh, for years she grew a garden uh, in a tiny little apartment building, she grew all of her vegetables by getting Rubbermaid containers and uh, going around to molehills or gopher hills uh, or any burrowing mammal that lives underground and gathering those piles of dirt into her boxes because they're like the perfect potting soil, which uh, I'll come back to. There's another question about potting soil there. Um, it's like, because it's, it's beautifully aerated, it's moist. Uh, there's probably some, you know, uh, compost in there or uh, manure in there from the, the burrowing ground, animal underground. And she said, all she did was she grabbed that, that free dirt from off the ground, put it into these uh, planter boxes and took them back to her apartment building. She grew all of her vegetables in a tiny little uh, um, apartment building. So um, we, there, there's always something that you can do for almost no cost um, and uh, there's tons of, of unused land in the city. I don't know if, uh, well, Mike from Living Soil Solutions, I think he's part of a agricultural cooperative in Calgary right now that is being given uh, multiple acres of land in the middle of the city to start producing food. Um, and so now is, the, now is a fantastic time. If you are a leader in your community, uh, approach your, your politicians, say, we're gonna have a food crisis in six months if, if we don't start doing something about it. 
I'm prepared. I've got the skills. Here's my plan. Here's my design. I want this piece of property. I want this much budget to buy seeds, blah, 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 blah. And if, if you stand up to lead, you'll have absolutely no troubles. Uh, and because of the, I know the, the cooperative in Calgary that's been trying to get started, they've been just, the bureaucracy is just painful to get through. But in times like this, as you've likely noticed, you know, all kind of caution goes out to the wind and you can really fast track uh, stuff quickly. So, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Let's get the, uh, let's get to the next so question here. Next question is what, what household materials can you use to, uh, to make a, a seed starting mix uh, from star? Hey star, how you doing? Um, so I already answered that with, um, I think, you know, finding molehills or pocket gophers or ground squirrels or, or marmots or whatever burrowing animal you can find. Um, they, they typically live along in, in, you know, lawns or in pastures or things like that. Um, you don't need very much. It's, it's like the perfect potting soil. Um, if not, you can make your own compost, uh, mix it with a bit of uh, sharp sand and you're good to go. Okay. Uh, next one. Um, I might have missed here. See here. So okay. I, so Mike asks, "What have you eaten for breakfast this morning?" <laughs> quit, quit trolling us, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Ashley Taylor. I'm fearful of investing in plant material with the economy in such flux. Flux. A thousand years in perennials that produce in maybe three years, or having some savings in the bank to fall back on. So what happens from a monetary perspective is, is almost impossible to predict right now. Um, and, uh, and so it's really difficult to give advice on that. Um, Holmgren has a principle that, um, what is it, Dakota? You, um, essentially, like, I'll, I'll use Mollison's version of it, obtain a yield. No, that's, that's Holmgren's version. Um, you need to, to grow stuff that grows today and that grows in three years from now. And so if I was trying to manage the risk of that question, what I would do is grow a big garden. And then as the summer progresses, there's a really great book out there by DK Press. And actually you don't even really need it to do the internet if you want, but uh, DK Press has a book called Propagation, one word. And it has every propagation methodology known to man in that book. It's a great book. I just actually moved it to my farm yesterday. I made sure that I had it in my a collection and what i've done um my wife calls me the backyard creeper um because through the summertime uh for every year that rowan and naomi have been alive i biked through back i used to bike through back alleys i'm not in the city anymore but i used to bike through back alleys and um look for uh, alley plants or even look for plants in, in people's backyards and i would look at how they designed it and what they were growing and um, and we inevitably, a lot of that stuff never even got harvested. So we would harvest all the kind of un, unspoken for fruit, um, usually knocking on a door is all you need to do. So a lot of the perennials that you want to grow are available for free. If you know how to propagate them, you just have to be able to iso, um, uh, find them essentially. And then once you find them and identify what they are, you can quickly figure out how to propagate them um, all throughout the next season, uh, which saves you the money now you gain a, an invaluable skill in propagation. You've now potentially got yourself a little um, business that you can run because other people are going to need perennial plants. 
Um, and you've done it just by understanding that plants like to procreate and, and multiply. Um, so uh, that's how I would approach that. Some things, um, specifically in the perennial side of things, will not uh, do as well from cuttings as they will from seed. But I would argue that most apple trees, as an example, are all uh, propagated using similar methodologies. Um, so learn how to propagate. Um, you've got some time right now. I would, uh, you know, a couple of days on Google or a couple of days in a book like Propagation by DK Press, and you'd be set. Um, and then you just have to go out and fail. And what I mean by that is go make mistakes, go practice, go learn the skill, uh, and you'll be you'll be in good good shape in no time. Okay, next question: uh, Is the soil alongside a compost pile better for compost tea that the that the piled piled compost than the than the piled compost? Uh, so you know what, Rodney. Um, We've got a compost tea expert on the call right now, um, uh, or on the chat. His name is Mike Dorian. He's, he's the guy with Living Soil Solutions. Um, I would pose the question to Mike and let him uh, reply in the chat instead of uh, uh, me answering it. I have my opinion, of course, but uh, Mike has been, is basically a soil master uh, or a master of soils um, and uh, has been perfecting his craft for the last uh, almost three quarters of a decade now. And uh, I definitely rely upon his expertise when it comes to uh, soil. You can find him at livingsoil.ca, I believe. Mike, you can put your URL up in the chat window um, for folks to, to be able to get in touch with you. Um, okay, next question. David Johnson, will the PDC online course be using Zoom? Yes. David, we don't have time to pre-record it. And so this course is gonna be raw and live and uh, our goal is to basically uh, be right along with you. The, one of the things that I'm concerned about is social distancing and, and the effect that that has on the human psyche. And so I want to uh, make sure that we're creating um, a community online um, of people that can help each other through this coming six months um, and dealing with the critical path items that emerge as they emerge. Um, and so this is partially a PDC, but it's also, a, a, it gives us the opportunity here at Verge to actually put some resources together um, to bring in experts and to create the conversation that we need to create uh, so that we build the community of resilient permaculturists um, that this world, this world so desperately needs that Bill Mollison was talking about in the 1970s. So a crisis is a horrible time, horrible thing to waste. It's a wonderful opportunity to build a global, continue to build the global community and, uh, and support each other through uh, the tough times ahead. Did you want to add anything to that, Dakota? No, that's, that's perfect. Okay. Um, David also asked idea on costs. Well, if you're coming from the States, it's almost going to be free because our dollar continues to fall every day. Um, we're looking at about $699 Canadian. Um, so it's basically, I, I, I don't even think in the first year that I taught PDCs that it was that inexpensive. Um, but if you're on our newsletter, you'll be first to find out uh, about that and how the whole program is going to run. Uh, Megan Wilson, what is the Latin name for duck potato? I know you've got that one memorized, Dakota. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I just looked it up. It's Sagittaria latifolia. I just put it into the chat window below. Uh, and then just above that, uh, our, our buddy Jordan Saunders has a question for us. Uh, does it oh. make sense to mobilize savings now before inflationary measures 
could wipe the value of that out or wait to potentially purchase land, et cetera, when prices fall due to economic contraction? This is a fantastic question. And um, the way that I would look at it is, uh, as always, is it depends. And, um, and what it depends upon is, the, I don't think you were on the call, the first call there, Jordan, but um, uh, the first step of our, of our design process is to clarify your vision, values, and resources. Uh, and so what that is, like your resources is what you have, your vision is what you want, and your values is what is right. And so uh, if you take a look at all your resources, which we use the eight forms of capital model, I know you're familiar with that, um, and then compare what you have right now to what you want, uh, also make statements about each of the eight forms of capital, about how they need to look to achieve your highest quality of life. And, and then um, the, the values conversation about what's right, that's just the three ethics of permaculture. Um, and then you can immediately see what the difference between what you have and what you want is, uh, or what you need. And, and uh, based on each of your eight forms of capital, so it'll make sense. Like, is your weak link land right now? Do you have, do you have a ton of cash sitting around that you could buy a piece of property? Um, or uh, are you better off to, you know, continue to, to, to do work? Um, like, do you have, uh, do you have a, a bunch of social capital, which I know you do? Like, uh, you can probably think of 10 people right now that would pay you to come and squat on your land just because of the uh, amazing stories that uh, you share in the evening, let alone all the skills that you have with timber framing and stuff like that. So um, I think it, it really is an individual you know, question, but um, uh, that you, you have to use, or another metric to think about is there's a difference between risk, reward, and ruin. So a lot of people will do like a risk reward analysis, you know, pros and cons. But um, few people acknowledge the, the really heavy hitter, which is the, is the ruin conversation. So um, you, another way you can ask yourself is, is, if I were to take this action, if I were to buy this piece of land, this piece of equipment or, or whatever right now, um, is there any scenario that you can imagine that would lead to ruin, which we, we define ruin as uh, any outcome that would cause uh, an incredible amount of suffering that would be difficult to come back from. So suffering or loss of life. Um, and so you can do like the risk reward thing. And obviously you want to have, there's nothing wrong with risk. There's always going to be some, and obviously you want to have as much reward as possible. But um, if there's the potential that if you were to, uh, you know, say buy a piece of property and then not be able to pay it off because your money's all gone or whatever, um, you want to avoid ruin like the plague, being be very ruin averse, um, and then try to take decisions that um, uh, that have far more reward than they do risk. <clears throat> Rob, do you have any any thoughts there? I know you just bought a piece of property, so you're gonna have a a poignant answer to this. Yeah, so I mean, it's absolutely. I've been telling people to stay out of debt most of the last decade, and here I am getting into it. Um, uh, my context is a little different. Um, we've always had, you know, a couple of years of savings um, to, to fall back on. And so I am concerned about the, the money piece, Jordan. Um, the other thing that I was thinking about the other day is uh, during Harper's um, 
when Harper was prime minister in Canada, uh, a bunch of the legislation got changed in Canada that would allow for bail-ins. And so it's actually not that unrealistic that um, all of the people that have financial assets could be asked to or forced to uh, bail the banks in. Um, that's not totally out of the question. Um, but in reality, and, like, and go ahead. I was, I was going to say, that, and that has happened. That's what happened in Greece. Cyprus. I don't know, was it, was it Cyprus. Uh, yeah, in, in, uh, in, in 2008, was it? Yeah. Um, because of austerity measures that the um, IMF or the World Bank or whatever placed upon it. I think it was anybody who had more than $30,000 in their bank account, anything above that just got, just disappeared. Taxed. No, no, it was taxed. It didn't all disappear, but it was taxed. Um, so, so, I mean, those are decisions that, that you need to make. Um, we can't get, uh, advice. So this, this is really important because um, we get asked advice all the time and everybody's in a different situation and has a different context. Michelle and I just did a couple of videos recently. And Derek, if you're watching, if you could post those, that'd be great um, on the chat there. But um, on how to build a values and vision sheet, how to build your um, decision-making framework. And um, almost every advice, piece of advice that you get um, when it comes to these types of things, like how do you make decisions about money or what should or shouldn't you buy? Um, you need to look internally for that answer because it... I'll give you advice, but that advice is based upon my own human biases. So we started the conversation off with all the known biases. I have tons of them. Um, and my biases aren't necessarily going to be your biases. And what I value isn't necessarily going to be what you value. Um, and so most advice is just bad advice. Uh, and, and so the, unfortunately, that means that we have to make our own decisions. We have to give ourselves our own advice. And this is where that, that quote, know thyself is so important. Um, and so the, the process of building your values and vision one pager and using the decision uh, testing questions, which eventually we'll talk about at some point in the future, um, is probably the best answer that we can give is like get your get clear on what you want in your life. And then you, you basically start making decisions around what your weak link is. Is your weak link land? Is your weak link gardening tools? Is your weak link um, you know, what is it? And, uh, and then from there, you can look at all the options that are, you have on the table. You look at what you want in your life and you try and figure out where the intersection between the Venn diagram actually exists. And that's, that's the power of a decision-making process. When we go and consult for people and, uh, and we don't end up giving them advice, we sometimes we'll give them advice on kind of where a greenhouse is more op most optimally placed based upon solar radiation. I mean, that's, I can give good advice about that. Um, but uh, in terms of how to spend your eight forms of capital, uh, you really have to make those decisions on your own. Uh, any, any other answer other than that would be um, disingenuous by either of us. So um, there are risks. The risks are bail-in. The risks are hyperinflation. The risks are um, bankruptcy. We don't know how the government, the government has deconstructed the economy. We don't know how they're going to reconstruct it. There's a ton of uncertainty there. Um, and you just have to do your best to try and identify the risks that you can see and come up with options that will allow you to pivot um, should those things come to fruition. And um, <clears throat> right now, my, my approach, I'll tell you what my approach is. I'm keeping 
a certain amount of cash in the bank. I have no investments. And those are my mortgage payments, essentially. I have um, a part-time job, which as of right now is not threatened. Um, and um, we have basically been talking about this for the last decade. Um, what I did 10 years ago was I said, okay, let's look at water, energy, waste, and shelter. And as an engineer, I, I went through and food. And I looked at the, whether I felt that those systems were fragile, resilient, or anti-fragile. So fragile things break when you add um, volatility. Resilient things resist breaking when you add volatility. So we could say COVID-19 is volatility. Um, deconstruction of the economy is volatility. And anti-fragile things benefit in times of volatility to a certain dose dependency. So um, beyond a certain dosage, everything breaks. And so I said, well, the oil industry is, is fragile. The financial system is fragile. The food system is fragile. Um, the energy system is fragile. The water system is fragile. Everything that we have come to depend on as a modern species that has allowed us to specialize is fragile. And it terrified me. And then I went down the conspiracy hole um, and started trying to understand why this was like this. And then I got pulled out of it by permaculture. And I said, okay, well, what, wh how do I have to act in a way such that when these, if one of these things breaks because they're fragile, I can't predict what's going to break them. I could never have predicted a pandemic um, or a specific pandemic. But if one of these systems breaks, I don't need to figure out why it's broken or how it's going to break. I can observe that it's broken or that it's breaking. We can say that that's going on right now. How do I have to act? What behaviors do I have to exhibit? Um, what skills can I learn? Um, what things can I do with the capital I have, not just the financial capital, but my time, um, my material resources, um, the community around me, uh, so that in that type of a scenario, uh, I have done the best of my ability to ensure myself. And um, I don't know how it's going to pan out for us. But what I can tell you right now is that I'm getting a lot of phone calls from people that want advice right now. And so if you're on this call, a lot of you guys, especially you, Jordan, you have invested so heavily in your experiential capital. I, I suspect for every dollar in the bank you've got, you've got $1,000 in skills. And they're rare skills. They're skills that most people have forgotten or have let atrophy. And so right now, I would be going through, if I was you, um, money is one thing, but I would be going through my social relationships, my relation, the relationships that I have around me. You are another one of the leaders on this phone call. I know you. You have uh, incredible leadership capability. Um, people uh, are drawn to you because of your charisma. And I know that Dakota would back this statement up. Um, I think of you as a, a, as a brother. You're one of those guys that just stands out uh, around you. And so I think if you just put your hand up and say, okay, we're going to do this, you will have an army of people around you in no time and you'll get it done because you know how to do it. You've been through it. You, you haven't been impoverished in the last 10 years. You have been building capital in other areas that, that don't have balance sheets. Um, and I suspect a lot of people on this phone call would fall under that same category. Uh, the time to lead is now, and, and you have put yourself into a community. And, and I know there's a few of you on this phone call. Sean is another leader. I admire her immensely. And Damon is another one. So the trifecta of you guys 
in your little valley right there are going to be just fine. There's more resources in that valley than you can shake a fir tree at. Um, and uh, it's, it's just about coordinating, which you've already been doing for the last decade anyways. So I'm not worried about you guys. You guys are going to kick ass. All right. Next question. We've got uh, 10 more minutes before the, the two hours up. Um, before I answer the next question, or Dakota does, um, we, want, we want to ask you a question now. Um, one of the topics that we've talked about talking about um, is uh, gardening. So Dakota is probably one of the best gardeners I know. Um, the guy has innovated uh, immensely in this space, um, low tech, uh, appropriate tech, um, so, or I said appropriate technology-based gardening that leverages uh, our scientific understanding of the soil and cover crops and um, in a way that, that makes it relatively easy. So I'd love to interview Dakota, if you guys are into that, on how he gardens and how he came to those conclusions and some of the things that, some of his weak spots, like where he sees problems in the way that he does things and how he can improve and think experiments that he's run that, that have been really helpful. Um, and so I think next Tuesday, we're gonna potentially talk about that if you're interested, but if there are other topics or conversations that you guys would like to have us host, whether they're other experts, we've got a soil expert on the phone call, Carmen Lamareux, who's on the phone call is a master gardener and a forester, incredible wealth of knowledge, uh, urban farm school, you can find her at urbanfarmschool.ca. Um, we, can, we can bring these experts onto the phone calls if you guys wish. Um, we're really here to um, you know, provide that uh, information to you guys uh, and, and answer your questions as required as we go through this um, together. So um, please put any of the topics that you wish to talk about in a future call down below and we'll, we'll uh, collect them and tally them up. Awesome. Okay. The next question here is uh, from Big Rock Candy Mountain. Uh, does religion make you uncomfortable? <laughs> uh, far from it. I actually love discussing the topic of religion. Uh, Robert and I do it a lot. And uh, I don't want to get on uh, a tangent, but uh, if you watched, the, if, if you didn't watch the beginning part of the conversation, um, that I put religion in the same category as any of the other hypotheses about reality. And uh, I asked myself the same question, how would I, are there, are there things that I can do that would benefit me, whether this hypothesis was true, uh, um, or if, if one, none, or all of, this, of these hypotheses were true. And uh, at that point, um, I particularly believe that, that um, uh, uh, organized religion becomes um, unnecessary. Uh, now, spirituality, on the other hand, is a completely different matter. And um, I would describe myself as a very, uh, spiritual capital is one of the eight forms of capital. And uh, I consider my, my life and some of the experiences that I've had to be incredibly rich in spirituality. Um, I'm, I certainly don't uh, align myself as, um, as an atheist or a, um, uh, a modernist or anything like that, but uh, that's probably as far as I'm gonna go into that, given the, the theme of this topic. But what about, what about you, Rob? Does religion make you uncomfortable? Um, it probably makes me a little more uncomfortable than you, um, but I do really like learning about it and, um, um, yeah, it, 
um, I believe that as a species, as, as a 21st century um, hominoid, um, that we have a collection of myths and religion um, falls into that category. There's stories that or allegories that help us to um, live a good life. And um, there are lots of stories that serve us and there's lots of stories that don't. And um, this is why you and I are so big on getting people to, to really get down on paper what their vision and values are. What do you want in the future? What do you hold true? Um, and then once people have done that, they can decide which myths and stories and allegories are important to them and will support their values and vision. And um, I think that a lot of people uh, take allegories and uh, mythology on without having dived deep into um, themselves to understand what their driving force is, what their prime driver is, um, and then make decisions about how to view the world. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think that's all I'm going to say about that. Um, we've got five more minutes, so uh, let's uh, hit another really juicy one here, and then uh, we'll probably be calling it an evening. What are the best sources for cold hardy fruiting <clears throat> nut perennials in Alberta, Canada. Um, so I know there's a lot of nurseries in, in Calgary and, and different places like that. Um, however, and in, in all the cities, from what I understand, most of the you know, fruit or, or nut perennials that you buy in Alberta, if it's at a nursery, most of them aren't grown in Alberta. They're actually produced uh, by a, a nursery called Aubins, A-U-B-I-N-S. Um, I'll put it in the uh, nursery, Aubins Nursery, I think it's in Manitoba. And that's actually where I got all of my, uh, the, or the majority of my perennials. And uh, uh, I, I believe if, if you order more than $1,500, they'll give you wholesale pricing and they'll actually deliver the trees to your property as long as they can get uh, like a tractor trailer or a reefer trailer, uh, one of the big semis into your yard. They'll actually drop it off uh, for you for you know a nominal fee. And uh, that's where I get most of my stuff. They have a lot of great things. And if, again, if you're buying it from another you know, commercial nursery, that's typically where they get their stuff. Uh, but that being said, I think one of the best sources is, as Rob mentioned earlier, go around to your, you know, take part in a local permaculture guild. There's one in Edmonton, there's one in Calgary, and and tell people you're interested in in propagating, you know, plants. Uh, a lot of the plants that I also got, I have on my farm now, came from just other people just giving me, you know, a cutting of comfrey, uh, uh, a cutting of, you know, currants or um, we have a whole bunch of Evans cherries in our, our yard that produce just like gallons of cherries every year. And they came as suckers off of a tree that my grandfather had. Um, and we literally just like, you just hack out one of the, the shoots off of um, one of the, the roots and you go home and plant it. And, you know, a few years later, you've got a, a tree. So um, those are two really good answers. I don't know if you've got any other sources there, Rob. No, that's, that's great. Um, I want to, I want to address one thing. Um, 
two things actually. One, there's a really important question here. Does Dakota own more than one vest or is it magic and never shows any sign of wear? <laughs> um, it, is, it, it is actually a magic vest um, and he won't tell me where he buys them. So um, good, good observation. Uh, the last comment um, was made by uh, Lisa Patterson, another incredible leader in Southern Alberta. Um, she's the president of the Permaculture Calgary Guild. And if you're in Southern Alberta and you're not part of the guild, uh, one of the most important steps that you can take is to join the guild. It's $35 a year, it's basically free. Um, and uh, I'm sure that we're gonna be seeing action coming off that website here soon as well. Um, she made a comment about how we've all decided that uh, that health is more important than economy and we should be um, sticking to it and focusing on that and not the economy. And I agree entirely with you, Lisa, but the reality is, is that, uh, and you live on a farm, you produce meat. If you're looking for lamb, um, they make, they grow incredible uh, lamb in Southern Alberta. So I, I highly recommend you uh, get in touch with them. If you don't know how to, you can email us and we'll put you in touch with them directly. Um, here's the, here's the thing. We've all been told to focus on the, the uh, allocate or um, collection of financial resources. So we trade the majority of our living capital or life energy to go out and collect money because all of the resources that we need uh, come from the exchange of money currently for most people. And we're witnessing the systematic shutdown of a system that we've all been told to uh, invest into. We, we basically traded life energy for financial dollars, yet the financial dollars that we have in our bank accounts is, are subject to the risks and decisions of people that are much, um, that, that we have no control over. It's like sphere of influence, sphere of concern. I have no ability to manage the interest rate. I have no ability uh, to influence monetary policy, yet uh, all the money that I have generated is sitting in a system um, which is subject to somebody else's control. And as that economy, as, as there's other people pulling those levers and making decisions, not really knowing what's gonna happen on the back end, um, we are all subject to ruin. And so I think it is really important that we focus on economy and that we recognize, especially people that have put their entire life into the collection of financial resources, and that we understand the repercussions of not taking action in those areas. And this is, this is really the crux of the phone call tonight, was that if you're focusing on the why, and you're not focusing on like the why that this is happening, um, and you're not focusing on what you're gonna do, and how you're gonna respond productively and creatively and positively to the challenges that we face, then um, then you're gonna basically be subject to the decisions that other people make on your behalf. So one of the things that that we do when we, when we get people to, um, and, and I, I, hold on, before I say that, um, I think, the essence or the intent of Lisa's comment was that economy is really not that important. It's not um, people are important. Uh, nutrition is important. Community is important. Absolutely. I agree hundred percent with that. And we shouldn't make money the only focus of our life, but 
so much of everybody's life is wrapped up in money and they're going to watch it evaporate. And I think it's important that people take um, proactive measures, whatever that means for you, with regards to um, the values and vision that you hold in your life. And everyone's going to have a different set of value, values and vision. And so one of the things that we get people to do, we're working through this with a cooperative farm in Ontario right now, <laughs> is we're getting people to do an inventory of their resources. Financial is just one of the eight forms of capital. Um, and so really capturing the people in your community, the intellectual capital that we all have, the experiential capital that we all have, <laughs> the social capital that we all have, and, and really trying to identify where the weak links are on your balance sheet. And, um, and then making decisions on how you're gonna manipulate that capital to reinforce those weak links so they're not so weak anymore. And, and that's the essence of um, how permaculture looks at capital. It's a very holistic approach to um, all the different ways that we can store value. So I, 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 do you want to add anything to that, Dakota, before I, we close out? No, I th think that's, uh, that's great. And we answered a, a lot of questions tonight. And uh, so I haven't seen any replies to Rob's earlier question, which was what, um, if you guys have any ideas about how you want to shape these future conversations, we're happy to just keep them, you know, just open Q&A sessions. Um, one of our hopes or one of our ideas, which we've done so far is, is we basically uh, start out with, you know, half an hour to an hour long conversation like Rob and I had tonight where we were just talking about a specific topic. And then the last hour we spend on Q and A, but uh, we're happy to make this whatever it needs to look so that you guys can get the most value out of it. So if you have any suggestions, please do put those in the, the, the chat window right now. And, um, if, uh, if you don't have any suggestions and you're just happy to keep things going, then uh, you could also put in in the, the chat window right now what, uh, what was one of your biggest insights from tonight. And uh, Rob, I'll let you close that out. So I just wanted to thank everybody for taking two hours of their night um, to spend with us. Uh, if you found that useful, please hit the share button and share with some friends if you think that they would get uh, value out of this. Uh, one of the ways that, um, that you can support us is by hitting the like button that helps the video to, um, to track on YouTube. And uh, if you are looking for a community to go through this crisis with, uh, keep paying attention and, and coming out to these Tuesday night chats. You can sign up for our newsletter at vergepermaculture.ca. Um, and if you're um, without a PDC and you want to get it, we'll never offer an online PDC this inexpensively ever again. Um, we want to have you on board. We want to create a community of people that are taking action. Um, we want to be helping to facilitate uh, positive conversation around how to um, manage through this difficult time. There are solutions. There's great opportunities to uh, to make that management uh, and, and to manage this crisis in a positive way. Um, but it does involve uh, making sure that we're, we're actively communicating with our community. So one of the best things that you can do is start calling the people around you and, and organizing and understanding what those resources are and, and where those weak links and community um, exist within your system. 
So thanks so much for coming out, guys. I know um, that all of this stuff is, is difficult to think about. And there's, there's lots of um, people that are really scared about this. And um, we just have to, we have to put our hands up and we've got to lead and we've got to, we've got to take charge. We can't put our heads in the sand and hope that it goes away. Yeah. All right, folks. Um, I'm just going to go through some of these, in these insights and then... Um, Okay, I'm not seeing That's too good. many insights, lots of comments here. So um, awesome, okay. And, and the, keep, keep the, if you are watching this live, you can still put comments below. We're gonna keep monitoring those. Um, as Rob said, like this, this was a live uh, presentation, but it, it, it will remain on YouTube to, to replay. Um, so please do, you know, share it with, you know, friends, family, anybody you guys think is who would benefit from this conversation and, and invite them out to the next one. We are going to be doing these every Tuesday, uh, from four to 6 PM mountain time. So the same time we did it tonight and, uh, we'll, we'll do it for the foreseeable future until, uh, until we can start getting out of our houses again <laughs> or until people stop showing up. So great. All right. Thanks so much, guys. Have a wonderful evening and we'll see you guys all next week. Good night.